You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. Michigan's U.S. Senate race in 2020 is turning into one of the most hard-fought contests in the country. Senator Gary Peters has served one term in the chamber and has made a name for himself as ranking member of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. He's facing Republican challenger John James, a Farmington Hills businessman and Iraq War veteran who lost his bid two years ago to unseat Senator Debbie Stabenow. Detroit News editorial page editor Nolan Finley and I had the chance to speak with both candidates during the Detroit Regional Chamber's MPC 20 Conversations series. We're going to spend the rest of the hour listening to those conversations. First, here's our interview with Democratic U.S. Senator Gary Peters. Senator Gary Peters, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you, Nolan. Senator COVID-19 is overwhelming every other issue in this race. You recently voted against a stimulus relief package in the Senate. Why didn't you support that bill? And what sort of package would you support for the next phase of COVID relief? Well, I believe uh, we have to come together in a bipartisan way and deal with uh, this crisis and put meaningful resources in. It's, It's very clear that we still have a ways to go to get through this pandemic. Economists across the board, whether they're to the left or the right, believe that we need to put resources in and we have to understand that in particular, we have to protect our small businesses to make sure that they're healthy and get through this if we have any hope of having this economy recover as quickly uh, as as possible. And we did that with the CARES Act. Democrats, Republicans came together. We passed the the CARES Act, which uh, provided uh, resources necessary for uh, for our economy to stay uh, moving forward, that we're going to need to do more. But we need to do that together. The House passed a very comprehensive package several months ago. Unfortunately, Mitch McConnell, the Republicans, didn't bring the issue up uh, for several months. Uh, Now they're before us. uh, And in fact, in the negotiations, my understanding is Mitch McConnell wasn't even in the negotiations uh, with the House, uh, the Senate uh, and uh, and the White House. So so we've got to come together. It's got to be meaningful. It's got to be in good faith. Uh, We've seen uh, negotiations uh, move forward. uh, And yet uh, Mitch McConnell uh, put out a proposal. Then he came back and had a vote on a proposal that was even smaller than the one he had uh, before. And if he's serious about negotiations, we should go back to the table, say, let's come together. Let's do what we have done in the past. You know, I take great pride in in working in a bipartisan way. I demonstrate that every single day. In fact, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has awarded me their uh, inaugural Jefferson Hamilton Award for bipartisanship. U.S. Chamber of Commerce is not a Democratic organization, but they see me as someone who wants to come together and work in a bipartisan way. That's why I'm ranked one of the most bipartisan Democratic members of the Senate by the Lugar Center out of Georgetown University. I'm ranked as as uh, one of the most effective in actually getting things done because I bring folks uh, together. Okay, Senator, the House bill was also a very expensive bill. Is there any discussion down there about how we pay for all of this stimulus relief? Uh, well, uh, there's no question that we have to make sure that we're on strong uh, financial footing going forward. It has to be sustainable. I'm certainly concerned, very concerned about uh, the deficit as it grows. But as we know right now, we're in the middle of a crisis. And when we came together with uh, the CARES Act, uh, that was uh, money that needed to be spent to get keep the economy uh, going. Uh, we know if the economy had collapsed, uh, it would be much more expensive. So in a time of emergency, you knew, you do need to put money uh, into the system. 
Uh, but then you're going to have to take a look after we get through this crisis as to how that we can get back on a sound financial footing. And I would say, number one in that regards uh, is you've got to get the economy to recover as quickly as possible. Economic growth is absolutely critical. Uh, and we're dealing with a deficit. You have to look at spending, you have to look at revenue, and you have to look at economic growth. But right now, our focus has to be on economic growth. How do we help small businesses? How do we help manufacturers get back up on their feet and make sure that that uh, investment and those jobs that are created in manufacturing translate into a stronger uh, economy? That's got to be uh, our focus uh, over the next uh, few months. So as, we, as we're dealing with a simultaneous public health crisis and economic crisis, uh, we've got to first uh, deal with the public health aspects, which means we've got to put more resources into testing and, and understanding. We've got to really uh, make our supply chains a whole lot more resilient so that we have the supplies necessary to get through this. And then we've got to focus on the economy to make sure that we're helping families get through this, making sure small businesses get through this. And then as that economy recovers, so we can take a look at meaningful action to deal with the deficit. Uh, so one of the things that has been made really manifest during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is the weakness of our healthcare system. Uh, we're now coming up on about a decade of life under the Affordable Care Act, uh, which of course expanded access to insurance and made some other changes, but there are obviously still a lot of inefficiencies. There are a lot of insufficiencies. Uh, give us an idea of what you would support in terms of changes to the healthcare system, uh, changes to the Affordable Care Act, uh, to get more people covered, to lower costs, uh, and make the system work better? Well, uh, there's no question the uh, pandemic highlights the, the need for healthcare and the fact that everybody in this country, no matter who they are, no matter where they live, should have access to quality, affordable healthcare particularly in a pandemic. Uh, that's why I've been pushing uh, this administration to actually open up enrollment in these state exchanges that allow folks to purchase quality care at an affordable price. You know, that enrollment only opens up uh, at, once a year at the end of the year. It makes no sense to me not to open it up now when we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are fearful that they don't have that uh, coverage. So that should happen. But we also have to expand on the Affordable Care Act and the ability for others to be able to sign up uh, we know right now, because of the Affordable Care Act in Michigan, uh, over a million people now have access to health care that they didn't uh, have before. People with pre-existing conditions uh, have coverage, which is always a, a problem. Uh, and uh, to hear folks say that we are going to repeal the Affordable Care Act uh, uh, is, I think, is uh, unacceptable. Uh, what we have to do is make sure we strengthen the Affordable Care Act, uh, fix uh, what may not be working right, but uh, strengthen it. But for folks who support, uh, for example, legislation that the Trump administration has right now that would just throw the Affordable Care Act out uh, is, uh, is unacceptable. And people who say that, well, I'll still protect uh, pre-existing conditions, but have no plan. You actually have to have a plan. You can't have hollow words, shallow talking points aren't going to deal with the, the immensity of this problem uh, with uh, health care. And I'll just mention one aspect. There are a lot of aspects to improve it, but one aspect is we have to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. Prescription drugs continue to rise at a level that's unacceptable. We need to have more competition. Uh, I've actually written legislation and passing legislation to deal uh, with the escalating cost of prescription drugs uh, and make sure generics, for example, can be more competitive and can bring down the cost. We have to make sure it is affordable and that's dealing with the cost structure. But just throwing out the Affordable Care Act uh, in its entirety without a plan is irresponsible. Let's uh, make sure we're fixing uh, what's not working uh, the way we'd like 
and strengthen uh, other areas that are already working for us. So, so there are a lot of Democrats who say that the solution to this is some form of single payer system. Medicare for all is, is one idea. There are lots of others out there. How far do you think we should go uh, toward toward that kind of uh, that kind of reform? Well, I, I do not support uh, Medicare for all. I'm not on uh, that legislation that is uh, here before us, but but I do believe that Medicare is a very efficient way to deliver health services to folks. Uh, that's why I support legislation that would allow people to buy into Medicare if they choose to do that and to do it at an earlier age, starting at age uh, 50. And also, I believe that in the Affordable Care Act, the part of the Affordable Care Act, as you know, Stephen, it's a very broad act. It impacts all aspects of, of health care and making sure that uh, seniors can have lower drug prices, making sure that we can keep our children on our health care plans age 26, having essential services uh, are all uh, part of uh, that. But in the state exchanges, which is a part of it, where people can buy health insurance, uh, I believe that one of the options for people in that state exchange, when they can pick from a variety of private companies, uh, that uh, Medicare should be one of those options uh, in that state exchange. So certainly the opportunity for people to use Medicare uh, is important. Uh, and I think we see how that works. And as that moves forward, uh, we can reassess uh, that situation and, and then take other steps. But right now, uh, let's uh, look at how we increase access to Medicare for folks uh, through the Affordable Care Act. Senator, you're on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, are we using our military appropriately? And what opportunities are there in that defense budget for Michigan? Well, there, there are tremendous opportunities uh, for, for Michigan. It's something I focus on, as, as you mentioned, as a member of uh, the Armed Services uh, Committee. I'm the ranking member, which means I'm the top Democrat on Emerging Threats and Capabilities uh, Subcommittee. Uh, and we have two areas of responsibility. One, I oversee all the military special operations forces. So think uh, U.S. Uh, Navy SEALs and a uh, position which I enjoy as a former U.S. Navy Reserve Officer, Lieutenant Commander, and use that experience uh, uh, on that committee. But the other aspect uh, of that committee is all the advanced research for the military. And so think of hypersonic missiles and artificial intelligence and how that's going to transform the uh, warfare in dramatic ways. And we're really uniquely positioned here in Michigan. We have a GVSC system or a unit, which is basically designing the next uh, generation combat vehicle. It does advanced research uh, for the Department of the Army. And when you think about the partnerships that we build with uh, civilian automakers, uh, with what's happening uh, with the Department of Defense and the Army, and how we can integrate automation. Self-driving cars are transformative on the civilian side. Self-driving, auto, autonomous uh, warfighting equipment uh, will save warfighters' lives and it will also make us uh, highly competitive and, and give us a superior advantage uh, on the battlefield. And all that technology can be devised and developed here uh, in Michigan, which puts us at the forefront of really advanced manufacturing generally. So I'm working to get more resources uh, into the research and development that occurs here in Michigan. Uh, and then making sure that that kind of investment also translates uh, into making Michigan a center for artificial intelligence and autonomy. And I'm very excited about the future for the state, but we've got to stay focused and continue to bring resources into the tremendous facilities that we have right here uh, in Michigan, both uh, 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 in uh, the private sector as well as the research done through the, the, the DOD uh, in Michigan. So uh, this election will be different from any other 
election any of us has experienced in our lives and maybe different from any other kind of election we've had in the history of, of the country, there's a lot of concern uh, about uh, absentee voting and mail-in voting. Uh, give me a sense of how concerned you are that we're not prepared for what will happen uh, in November and what do you think needs to happen in order to make sure that uh, that people can cast their votes and that those votes get counted? Well, uh, there, there's no question voting absentee is, uh, is a safe and secure way of voting. We've been doing it for years here in Michigan. It's uh, in the past, of course, it's been limited to uh, folks, uh, senior citizens and folks who may have been out of town. But Michigan voters uh, spoke loud and clear in 2018, said this should be available for everyone to be able to vote from the convenience uh, of your home. Clearly, in the middle of a pandemic, it makes uh, sense as well. So we know it's safe uh, and secure. And I would certainly encourage uh, folks to uh, request that absentee ballot uh, immediately if you haven't already requested it. Uh, right now I'm working uh, with the Postal Service to, to make sure that some of the policies and procedures that, that were put in place by the new Postmaster General uh, in July uh, have been suspended. Because uh, when we saw those procedures uh, put in place, we saw uh, on-time mail delivery drop dramatically. Uh, we're hoping that will recover, and we're seeing some evidence of that now that these procedures have been put on hold, but we're going to stay focused uh, on that. But I would encourage folks to get that ballot, fill it out uh, as uh, quickly as they feel comfortable, drop it in the mail, and if you're in with a week or two, uh, make sure you utilize some of the drop boxes that our clerks are, are uh, putting out uh, all across the state. So, so the post office has had a, a lot of problems for a long time. Uh, you have talked about those problems for a long time. I, I wonder uh, if you can talk about the opportunity to make change and whether we missed some of that opportunity while you've been uh, one of the senators from here in, in Michigan. Well, uh, there's no question uh, that we need to work to uh, make the, the Postal Service uh, financially sustainable and more efficient uh, in the years ahead. It has been a long-term uh, effort to, to make that happen. Uh, and there are some common sense changes we can put in place. I've been working on some of those changes uh, through my committee work. I'm the ranking member, the uh, now uh, the top Democrat on Homeland Security and Government Affairs uh, Committee. Uh, we were in very meaningful conversations to put in a number of reforms, including treating the Postal Service in a way similar to every company and every other federal agency is treated. They're not. In fact, uh, some of their pre-funding requirements uh, for healthcare are particularly onerous and no one else has to, to meet those requirements. And that is a significant cash flow drain for the Postal Service. So we were in some meaningful conversations uh, last year and I'll be quite frank, unfortunately, the Republicans walked away uh, for, from those discussions, including Mark Meadows, who is now the chief of staff uh, to uh, President uh, Trump. I walked away and showed uh, no interest. Uh, the chair of my committee really has uh, no interest in doing that. So I'm committed, uh, and uh, if uh, reelected, uh, look forward to uh, building the kind of bipartisan consensus necessary to make sure that the Postal Service can continue to provide what they've done for over 200 years. And we have to remember the Postal Service is the only delivery agency that uh, entity that delivers to every single address uh, in the country. It is indispensable. It's why it actually is in the U.S. Constitution. And there are changes we can make, but we need to have the political will to do it. And up to this point, I have not been able to get that political will from Republicans. And I think there are many, unfortunately, many folks in the Republican Party that would like to privatize uh, the Postal Service, uh, which I am opposed to. We can make sure the Postal Service continues to provide a service to every American, regardless of where they live. 
Senator, the Trump administration has pursued a rather aggressive um, agenda on trade. Where do you stand on tariffs and the crackdown on China? Uh, well, certainly we have to enforce uh, trade agreements. Uh, I believe that that is absolutely essential. I, I, I know that uh, American workers uh, and uh, can and companies can outcompete anybody uh, in the world. Uh, we uh, just need to make sure there's a level playing field. And when we enter into trade agreements, we would expect everybody to actually uh, abide by those uh, rules. And when they don't, uh, we need to hold them accountable. And certainly China has a long record of not abiding by uh, trade uh, rules that are in existence, and, and we need to, to, to step up. Uh, and in fact, I'm engaged right now to uh, deal with uh, a, a situation in Michigan where we have the Turkish government uh, dumping uh, cherries in the marketplace that is literally endangering the future of our cherry growers and producers in the Traverse City area, a key industry for us, an agricultural industry that's part of our DNA here in our state. And we need to get tough uh, on uh, the Turkish government I've been fighting the fight uh, with uh, growers up in the Traverse City area. We've had some successes with uh, tariffs. Unfortunately, we had a ruling where the, the ITC actually relied on Turkish data instead of U.S. data. And I'm now working to make sure that we have data from the U.S. government that will support the case that our cherry growers uh, have made uh, into how they're being uh, hurt. So we have to certainly enforce those rules, but we have to do it also, I would say, in a way that makes sense. And, and that means focusing on the particular issue uh, not uh, shooting overbroad and having unintended consequences. We've seen some of that with the Trump policies, particularly when it comes to agriculture in Michigan that's been hit. It's also been a, a, a challenge uh, for our auto suppliers. So you've got to be smart about uh, enforcing those trade policies. And you certainly shouldn't be doing things like punishing friends, which is what we have seen uh, from this administration. We should not go after uh, friends uh, and make sure we have allies when we're dealing with those folks who uh, violate uh, trade, uh, trade agreements. When I think about Michigan and the, the relationship we have with Canada, for example, uh, in fact, if, if Michigan were a, a country, we'd be the second largest trading partner with Canada. It's absolutely critical for our economy to make sure we have robust trade between our two countries. And we've got to strengthen that relationship instead of put a strain on it. Another uh, big issue with the Trump administration has been its approach uh, to immigration and uh, changing immigration. We used to talk about the possibility for comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, certainly the administration doesn't seem open to that. I, I wonder what you make of the possibility to solve this problem through legislation at, at, at some point, and what would that look like? Uh, there's no question we have to, and, and I hear uh, in my office regularly from folks who, who are concerned about the, the immigration policies and the uh, as they exist right now. You know, I think about folks in agriculture to make sure we have workers that can come here and uh, they're not immigrating permanently, but able to just come in to work uh, during uh, the harvest season. We've got other seasonal workers, Mackinac Island and other places that have challenges. We have a broken immigration system that needs to be overhauled. Uh, and I believe that we can come together in a bipartisan way to do that. Although I will be perfectly frank, I think it's very difficult with uh, the president we have now. And I'll just give you a brief example. When, when we were trying to negotiate through a, a government shutdown, which I think is absolutely outrageous that we would shut down the government. It should never happen. But I actually worked. Uh, we pulled together a group of 20 senators, half uh, Republicans, uh, half Democrats. There were 20 of us. Uh, and we worked through a compromise that we thought would really provide meaningful reform. I had 10 Republican senators who said they would support uh, that legislation. Uh, we went to Mitch McConnell. He put it on the, he uh, scheduled it to be on the floor. 
Uh, and even though the White House was being informed about all this, the day of the election, uh, President Trump said, I oppose uh, that uh, legislation. And nearly all of the Republicans who had agreed to it the day before all said now they can't support this bipartisan compromise because the president was opposed to it. We have to get past that. We can come together. As I mentioned earlier, I have a history of working together and in, in getting legislation passed in, in a bipartisan way. And in fact, if you just look at the last two years, uh, over the last two years, I have written and passed uh, more legislation through the United States Senate than any other U.S. Senator, either Democratic or Republican. That's the kind of thing we need to do to bring folks together. And we were very close to doing something with dreamers and dealing with border protection. Uh, and yet uh, it ended because the president uh, abruptly and uh, without real clear explanation said no. So we have to, uh, we have to uh, do it. And hopefully after uh, this election, we'll have an opportunity to deal with a critical issue. That was Democratic U.S. Senator Gary Peters talking with me and Detroit News editorial page editor Nolan Finley during the Detroit Regional Chamber's MPC 20 conversation series. Up next, we'll hear our conversation with Peters' Republican challenger, John James. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. We're listening to the conversations that Detroit News editorial page editor Nolan Finley and I had with the two major candidates for U.S. Senate here in Michigan. We just heard from Democratic Senator Gary Peters. Now we're going to hear from his Republican challenger, Farmington Hills businessman and Iraq War veteran John James. John, you coming, you're coming to politics from the business world. You and your family run a manufacturing business. What do businesses like yours need from the federal government to recover from the damage done by the COVID-19 pandemic? So that's a great question. And I, I understand uh, what it takes to create jobs and opportunities for, for people around the state of Michigan. And, uh, you know, businesses are used to dealing with tough times. We're very thick-skinned and hard workers in the state. But... We can deal with good times and bad, but the one thing that businesses uh, struggle through is uncertainty. What government needs to provide business is certainty. And I think we can do that with common sense, science-based tax reform, regulatory reform, and tort reform, so that we can have positive, sustainable, inclusive economic growth that incentivizes businesses to come back uh, and thrive in Michigan, that allows businesses that are already here to grow and thrive in Michigan. And uh, that's kind of a, a policy that not just uh, uh, talks about uh, uh, creating jobs, but creating more job creators, the innovators, entrepreneurs like my dad, uh, that created opportunities for, for folks uh, in Detroit, uh, around the state and east of Mississippi. Following up on that, John, the the COVID package that the, the Senate put together and was rejected uh, along partisan lines. Uh, would you have supported that bill? And if so, how would you pay for all this COVID relief and stimulation that Congress, Congress is passing? Yes, and economic growth. See, here's the thing. Our system was set up um, that it's most beneficial when more people can participate in the economy. This is a massive problem uh, that, that predates um, I mean, uh, I mean, the, the current issues. 
Um, we Yes, I would uh, have supported uh, this relief bill, but people need help now. Our schools need help now. And that relief should be tied directly and only to COVID-related uh, shortfalls. Um, I believe the way to pay for this is if we're making necessary uh, uh, spending decisions now, we also need to make necessary decisions for how we raise that money. And the best way to do that is to uh, broaden the tax base to create more opportunity rather than just knee-jerk increasing the tax rate. My opponent has voted to uh, in support of raising taxes 106 times uh, since he's been in D.C. And we're not going to be able to tax our way to prosperity. We need to grow our way to prosperity, but make sure that more people can gain access to it. The focus of my term in the Senate will be increasing access and tearing down barrier. From a physical standpoint, for infrastructure and focusing on the barriers that, I mean, many in Detroit face with transit. You have people talking about fixing the roads and investing in infrastructure. Well, these are people who have cars and can afford car insurance. There are people in, in the city of Detroit, and I'm learning on the Mayor's Workforce Development Board, uh, that, are, that are separated from opportunity. You look at the, at the service-based jobs that are available in the suburbs, but you have most of the people who can work those jobs in the city. And they're isolated from that opportunity. That's one way that we can invest to make sure that we can marry opportunity uh, with, with the need. Um, they also have the, uh, the health standpoint. I believe that COVID hit uh, our state so hard because of generations of disinvestment uh, in, in people. So uh, we have a lot of work to do, and uh, COVID recovery will hinge on tearing down barriers and increasing access so that we can grow job creator and have more people participate in a growing economy. Uh, John, you've been uh, really critical of the Affordable Care Act. You called it a monstrosity, I think, in, in one of the ads that's, that's running. Uh, but the question is always, what would you do instead? Give me an idea of, uh, of what a John James approach to health reform would look like. Well, that's, thank you for that question. Uh, that's a classic example of politics getting in the way and, and taking things out of context and intent. Uh, I said repeal and replace with something that will work in the real world. Uh, since Obamacare uh, was enacted, uh, there are folks who work at my company who've had their choices reduced and their costs go up. You look at the price and, and deductibles increasing and folks who are in high deductible plans are increasingly uh, unable to afford their health care and have to ration their care. Uh, I would support a, a primary care provision so that people could go at no cost to themselves if you were on a high deductible plan uh, to be able to get um, primary care visits throughout the year so that we can stay in better health. There's so much focus on health on healthcare insurance, not as much focus on, on health. Uh, nutrition, there are food deserts uh, around the state. We need to address that. But uh, an overarching theme, my position on, is, is the same as it's always been is we need to have a market-based, patient-centered approach that must cover pre-existing conditions. I think that through tort reform and regulatory reform, we can increase transparency in the healthcare industry. We can increase quality, we can increase choice, and we can decrease cost. And now uh, doctors and patients will have the choice and the power, not the federal government and insurance companies. Sadly, my opponent uh, has said that uh, he believes that Medicare for all is eventually where we will go. I think that's dangerous. I think it reduces choice. I, I think that uh, uh, that's the wrong way to go. Uh, and I think it'll ultimately uh, bankrupt our children's futures and send our seniors to the back of the line. Yeah. Well, actually, Senator Peters said he doesn't support uh, Medicare for All in the interview that we've done here at the MPC 
funny conversations. But but let me let me go back to something you said. You said it needs to make sure that we cover pre-existing conditions. How would you do that outside uh, outside a reform package like uh, the Affordable Care Act? What what would what would ensure that pre-existing conditions are covered if you didn't have that? Well, I, I think that by actually legislating um, and, and getting that, that ground up feedback, like I said, you're going to need the regulatory reform required uh, and, the, and the tort reform required to make sure that we can incentivize uh, the people who are making these decisions to care for people who need it the most. Uh, my son has a pre-existing condition, and, uh, and I recognize the need that we have to take care of everyone, um, especially the most vulnerable. I think the first start would be uh, to make sure that uh, we do everything we can to uh, to listen to the experts and uh, and and we we continue to push for the reforms that we need um, and and get the legislation required. But we had we had market based uh, insurance before, and people's pre-existing conditions were not covered. Affordable Care Act changed that. What what makes you think that the market will behave differently if you get like there? I said, like I said. Um, I said that we need to keep the parts of Obamacare that work, and we need to fix the parts that don't. And the part of Obamacare that works is uh, is covering pre-existing conditions. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Mr. James, um, as an African-American Republican, you're something of a unicorn in politics, and you're running in a year when uh, suddenly America is embroiled in discussions about race and how to uh, finally move the country uh, past, uh, beyond its racist past. Um, what are your thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement? And what are your ideas for bringing equity and inclusion to, to American society? Well, um, uh, my, my thoughts uh, on, on it uh, are, are informed by my personal experiences. Um, I, I have addressed uh, many times in every forum, uh, regardless of race, um, the fact that this nation is um, is uh, a, a, the greatest nation in the world, but, but we can't forget that, I mean, to use Pharrell's terms, uh, stolen lands built with uh, swollen hands. Um, I think that the way we fix this, the way we address this, the way we bring unity is, uh, is not to tear down our past, but look at working how we build our future. I think addressing the root causes for, uh, for, for this inequality uh, is overwhelmingly socioeconomic uh, immobility, financial anxiety, uh, and, and uh, our education system for generations has failed people who are most vulnerable. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the root causes of this, uh, I think, stem from the fact that you have an entire uh, group of people, uh, overwhelmingly African-American, who don't see a, a better future or opportunity for themselves, which is why I talk about access. Um, I, I also recognize that there is, there is a race component uh, here and, and I, I will get that firsthand when I can be pulled, I can be stopped, have guns drawn on me in a parking lot in my parked car because someone perceived me as a threat. I also understand what it feels like to be pulled over and see the flashing lights uh, in my rearview mirror and wonder if this is the, the night that maybe my, my baby's son will see his dad uh, die in the street. I understand what that feels like, but I also understand what it feels like to be an officer. Uh, patrolling areas to keep people safe, putting my life on the line and leaving my family to do so with people who just soon see me gone. Uh, I think that the ability uh, to see and, and live in both worlds and understand what it's like is essential for that civility that you two talk so much about, is essential for bringing that unity that we all know we need. Uh, I recognize that this country, 
looking at some stats, uh, if you look at a scale of uh, uh, one to a hundred, with a hundred being close to civil war, uh, and you two are familiar, this the, the, uh, we're almost three quarters of the way there. I think that having leadership who who um, is used to bringing nonpartisan solutions, um, both uh, in the uh, in the military and, and in business, uh, being raised by uh, two Democrats from the Jim Crow South to be an independent thinker, uh, not owned by any party or, or process, I think that uh, uh, that that's the best way to go. The way we make sure that uh, that we uh, we do what's best for everyone is to make sure that we have people who can relate to everyone and uh, and put politics second and people first. Uh, police reform is part of the conversation that we're having. Uh, you talked there about the fear that you have interacting with police, but of course you were also uh, an officer, a, a military officer. Give me an idea of what your, your sense of what's possible with police reform is. You have said that you don't idea, agree with the idea of quote unquote defunding uh, the police. Uh, so what, what would you do? How would you reform policing in America? Well, uh, a great start would be um, to actually increase funding uh, for public safety efforts. I think increasing the training and quality of officers would go a long, long way. And I think simply uh, being, a, being a, a military veteran, uh, doing more than, uh, than saying thank you. Uh, I think that increasing uh, the ability for our officers to train, increasing officers for uh, uh, particularly in use of force, and having been trained in the military, um, uh, when you subdue your your target or when you subdue uh, a, a person, a human being, uh, once that individual ceases to be a threat, uh, then uh, then you are in their custody and their life is in your hands. Uh, recognizing and making sure that higher quality officers, uh, increased training, community policing, um, more transparency, uh, these are all things that um, Hiring more officers who are who are from the areas that they're policing, uh, I, I strongly believe that uh, that the government uh, derives its, its mandate to govern from the people, and uh, and and our police, our law enforcement officers, uh, are doing uh, are doing great work, but uh, but still uh, we need to have support um, so that our officers can uh, can be able to do their jobs and keep us all safe. Uh, with the resource that they need. And so we increase understanding communication among the police and the police. So, so the Obama administration did a lot of work uh, putting together agreements with local police departments to do with the federal government a lot of the things that you're talking about. The Trump administration has pulled back on almost all of those. Uh, would you oppose the Trump administration's Justice Department's approach to this issue? Uh, well, one of the, uh, the the things that has happened most recently is uh, police reform um, that uh, that came up in the Senate and uh, uh, was was written by Tim Scott to actually move in the direction of uh, of, of police reforms, and uh, it, it was down partisan lines. Uh, uh, it was defeated. Uh, not uh, it, it didn't it didn't make enough votes uh, to even come to the floor for debate. Uh, I'm running against a guy who uh, has been calling for police reform for a couple of years. And then when he had the opportunity to vote for it, he chose his party. He voted against further debate on police reform to improve that bill. And I think that was wrong. Um, so, uh, yes, I believe that when you're talking about people's lives on the line, you can't prioritize a person or party you have to do the right thing. And I think that uh, starting with the police reform bill um, that was previously supported by my opponent, but uh, conveniently not supported anymore, 
uh, is something that would move in that direction. Uh, one of the things that I believe uh, helped in the city of Detroit specifically was a consent decree uh, in the uh, a couple a couple years back, where there were actually um, instances of uh, deaths in custody uh, and in uh, unwarranted shootings, cover up, and the police and the police department in the city of Detroit has uh, gotten significantly better. Uh, and I believe that uh, that's under the leadership of, uh, of Chief Craig and uh, Mayor Mike Duggan. I think that uh, by recognizing that we are not perfect and, uh, and that policing is a, is a high risk uh, uh, endeavor, I think that continuing to work toward profession, um, per, um, perfection is something that Detroit Police Department has done and uh, continuing to increase transparency and accountability, particularly with policing and incarceration, is something we need to move toward. So those consent decrees were part of the Obama reforms in, in lots of different cities. Do you support that? Uh, you know what? If it saves lives and it makes sense, then it shouldn't be partisan, Stephen. And uh, uh, putting someone's name in front of it doesn't make it right or wrong. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, what's best for people determines what's right or wrong. Mr. James, we were in the military, as you mentioned, spent eight years, including um, tours, uh, combat tours in Iraq. Is America using its military appropriately? Uh, and what opportunities are there in the defense budget for Michigan manufacturers? Oh, that's a great question, Nolan. Um, I would say uh, no. Uh, we are not built to be the world's police force. Um, I, I'll say that um, uh, Hussein is dead. Um, uh, Obama, Osama, excuse me, Osama bin Laden is dead. Soleimani um, is dead. Uh, Al Baghdadi is dead. Uh, we have been at war for 20 years, and. Um, after this September 11th, uh, I, I, and and the hundreds of thousands of people from around the world who've died, uh, the thousands of Americans who've lost their lives and have been maimed, uh, it, it's it's time to to wind down. Past time to wind down the global war on terror. Uh, I would work with the president to do that with a target date. Uh, of course, working with uh, with our with our experts um, to make sure we do that safely. But uh, we need to end this war uh, in, in the first part of, uh, of, of my Senate term. Uh, I would love to have it done, uh, ending the global war on terror officially by the 20th anniversary of September 11th next year. Uh, that, should, that should be the goal. But uh, ultimately, we have families that are strung out, suicide rates that are increasing. Uh, and we haven't had a, 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 what I believe over a number of, uh, of administrations, uh, a clear path out. Uh, we have in the past Eisenhower who, uh, who warned us against the uh, military-industrial complex, and I think that he was right. Uh, I think that uh, right now, uh, doing what we can uh, to make sure that we have a, an American foreign policy that uh, leverages uh, our, our, uh, our diplomacy, our alliances uh, to bring people to the table, uses our strong economy to, to bring them to their senses, and only at the very last resort our military to bring our enemies to their knees. Uh, that should be the policy going forward and, and only fight wars uh, um, uh, uh, if we have to, uh, never fight them alone and never fight them long. Uh, we, we need to have a long way to go in, uh, in ending foreign wars and beginning to invest uh, and, and bring, and bring our, our, our children back home and bring our investments and, and put them in our own communities. And moving forward, uh, I think that we have tremendous opportunity, particularly in um, in, uh, in, in Warren and in other places, uh, the arsenal of democracy uh, is in the Detroit area. Uh, and we already have existing uh, military aerospace uh, manufacturing, mass production. Uh, we've been able to win wars because of, our, because of our economic might, our ability to produce. 
but uh, just uh, just uh, throwing money at the, at, at the issue isn't a long-term solution. I think that we need to leverage our economic might, our, uh, our American ingenuity, and be able to fight wars in the future, both uh, asymmetric threats like cyber and, and, and counter-terror, and also symmetric and conventional threats like hypersonic space, uh, as well as land, sea, and air. Uh, we're fighting uh, people who are uh, looking in terms of centuries and dynasties. We can't get out of the way of quarters and election cycles. We need a longer term, uh, a longer term vision. Uh, we need to uh, focus on readiness uh, and we uh, need to begin looking at, at unmanned combat so we don't have to put more Americans in harm's way. What about immigration reform? It's something that we used to talk about a lot in terms oh my of gosh. Uh, the legislative uh, work that needs to be done to, to change the way that people come to this country. Uh, What's your view of what changes are necessary and what's your sense of the opportunity uh, if you were to join the Senate to actually get that done? Immigration is an economic and moral imperative for the United States of America. We need more legal immigration to make sure we can take our nation uh, to the next level, um, both on the on the uh, top uh, STEM intellectual end. Uh, we're educating uh, people. Uh, in our colleges, we're sending them away to compete against us. And on the uh, the the, work, the manual end, our farmers are struggling for labor uh, to process uh, food and material and to keep their farms going. I think that we need to have uh, a, a more welcoming, inclusive approach to our, to our immigration system without sacrificing national security or leaving Americans behind. Uh, that's absolutely essential. America must uh, remain that, that shining uh, city on the hill, that beacon of hope. And I think we can do that without leaving Americans behind. I think that there is an immense opportunity to do that in the Senate, um, uh, primarily because people recognize that uh, having a, a, a safe um, legal immigration system is, is ultimately and long term beneficial for economic growth, which we're going to need to pull ourselves out of this uh, economic crisis. That was John James, the Republican candidate who was challenging incumbent Senator Gary Peters for his U.S. Senate seat in 2020. That's going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.